Hey everybody, welcome back. Everything is a spring. I'm here with Derek. Let's jump into today's episode also about suspension bridges. But first, uh, let's get into the preload. Derek, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I uh, t- It's a beautiful day today. It's November 18th. Was it like um, 70 over where you are now? It's it's 77 degrees. Yeah, we're, we're looking at a cool like 73 in the city, and it feels like <laughs> spring, man. Dude, it feels so nice outside. Um, I was actually, earlier today, I was at the uh, Sugarcane Festival in uh, George L. Smith State Park, which was super fun. That sounds cool. Uh, it was, yeah. So, like, they basically, they took, uh, they grow sugarcane down there. And they they were like, this is how syrup used to be made. And so they've got like this like contraption that sits on like four wooden posts. And there's this log, <laughs> basically. It's like a 12-foot log that comes out of it. And uh, basically people like reach up and they grab onto the log and they walk it around in a big circle. And that turns like these grinding wheels. And so then somebody else feeds sugarcane into it and it crushes the juice out into a barrel and then they go and they boil that to concentrate it into syrup and that's how syrup was made dude i swear where you live is you're just actually playing through stardew valley because that's the sugarcane <laughs> festival we all just heave around this big human powered wheel and make yep. syrup make syrup that does sound pretty cool, cool. that's some cool it fall was- activity yeah, it was, it was it was neat. And then um yeah, there was like some vendors and stuff and that was kind of fun. Um but yeah, like the big thing was like the sugar cane and that was pretty cool. Right on, man. What about you? What you been up to? Oh, man, this week's been busy. I've been like really busy at work, but um I have some cool stuff coming up tomorrow. Um speaking of podcasts, one of my favorite podcasts that besides this one obviously is um one well there's your problem two welcome to night vale as you know has been like i think that was the first podcast i really got into and sure enough um we got a show like a live show and me and one of my friends are going to tomorrow so i'm really hyped to uh actually see them live i've seen them live once and it's they put on a heck of a it's more like a whole stage production than just a podcast reading at this point like there's music and special guests and stuff so um, that's awesome. It's exciting to one, you know, like I have to edit this tonight, but actually get to enjoy like from a distance tomorrow. So I'm looking forward right. to that. That'll be awesome. Awesome. That's that sounds awesome. And so uh, we got some more merch. Vale? Yeah. Welcome to Night Vale. We have more merch. What? Well, n- not officially. But I, I was telling you a little bit before we started recording, you know, I got Jim some Christmas presents. Um, Everything's a spring <laughs> themed. Right. And I did get myself a Christmas present, too, because like. Jim loves hats, right? He uses hats all the time. I don't usually wear hats, so I got myself a hoodie. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. I was like, I'm going to get the chef's kiss hoodie. Like, oh, it's the nice fabric and it's Nike, you know, got the logo on it. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, man. I guess, let me see. I'm trying to think about like, what do we have to discuss? Because we've, we kind of accidentally discussed all of our stuff before we started recording. <laughs> yeah, it was mostly just me asking how business was and just catching up, you know. That's true. That's true. Well, we won't go into business uh, too badly. I think we've got a fairly beefy episode, so I guess we can go Ooh. ahead and jump into it. Man, I'm telling you what, I know my excitement was shown last week. As I was editing, I was like, this, I need to tone it back a bit. Because bridges are cool, man. Bridges are cool. Bridges are very fun. So, yeah. So, I'm going to... I guess I'll just go ahead and ask my question. Derek, how do you feel about clowns? How do I feel about clowns? Like the circus clowns? Yeah, yeah, like circus clowns. Oh, gosh. I'm not, like, afraid of clowns, right? I might be a clown in hindsight, even though I don't look (laughs) like one. But I I don't know. I'm I'm indifferent about clowns. I don't don't dislike them. I don't seek them out. That's fair. I I feel like it's there's been this kind of interesting cultural... um, evolution of clowns right because apparently like back in the day like clowns were like really popular right like that was like a whole thing right and then somewhere along the lines clowns kind of became like this super creepy thing where where do you think that started from like where do you think that stemmed from my guess would be film right like i know we have like the it movie in this generation but there was a couple of like i don't know if they're called indie horror films where 
you know, in the 70s, 80s, it was just like, oh, you go, you have this clown, like, outside of your window, and it, like, I guess became this kind of, like, taboo media, because, like, clowns usually are supposed to be, like, you know, they go to a kid's birthday party, it's not this scary thing, but I'm guessing right. there's something I don't know. <laughs> well, I actually just Googled it, because I was curious. Is this, like, a culture shift? I mean, I, I guess it must have been, right? So, because, like, there's this guy named Bozo the Clown who was really popular in the 60s. Yeah. And there was, like, a 10-year wait for his tickets, like, to go People to his People were show. like, yeah, I remember hearing about Bozo the Clown. Like, he was the clown, like, that got marketed. Ah, okay. So, here's what happened. So, so the ser there's a serial killer named John Wayne Gacy. And he masqueraded part-time as a clown named Pogo in the 70s. And so then when it came out that he was a, a serial killer, <laughs> um, he, uh, right, like, he, people were like, they, they branded him as the killer clown. Oh, so I could see it, that. It's then, like all I over the papers. It, yeah, that's where it starts. So, But he, he, he didn't kill anyone as a clown, right? No. He just happened to be a clown on the side? So, yeah, I think, yeah, he was a clown on the side. And then part-time cloud, part-time killer. Ruined clowns for everyone. Well, I guess he, <laughs> yeah, like, he, jump-started the It, like, killer franchise, I guess. I think so. Like, I, I, I would imagine, yeah. So he, I'm looking at just, this is an article from ABC News. Um, so he kind of begins the killer clown stereotype. And that's where It comes from. So apparently the, I guess It is, like, not really a clown, but it's, I don't really it know. It looks what close enough is. to a clown for like the imagery, right? Right, but but isn't Pennywise like supposed to be like a like a demon or something? I think so. He's like possessed. I I'll be honest. Half of the time when I watch those movies, I'm half paying attention because I'm waiting for jump scare. <laughs> That's fair. That's honestly fair. Yeah, interesting. A fun aside about clowns and their origins. Yeah. Or the fear of clowns. The fear of clowns. Anyway, yeah, that's that's besides the point, really, to this episode. So we'll close that tab out. Um, but let me set the stage for you. So the year is uh, 1845 uh. in Yarmouth, England. Which uh, Yarmouth is on the... Um, it's by Norwich. It's basically on the east... Uh, very easternmost point of the island of Britain, um, facing the Netherlands and France. And it's it's kind of like northeast of London. Uh, but it's basically like this big uh, kind of like inland bay that I guess would be very, very good for, for keeping ships and stuff because you don't have to worry about the uh, the ravages of the ocean destroying your vessels and ports. So oh, that's nice. Yeah, so that's very good. So it, it seems to be, a, it's a very important port city is really all that's relevant there. But anyway, so that is the, 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 the year is 1845. And let's say um, this is obviously before our friend, uh, whatever his name is, the clown, who turned clowns into evil monsters. So people were hyped for clowns. It's, it's clown time. People were hyped for clowns. Um, and also, I think the term of, anyway, the use of the term clown was a little bit different. But basically, there's this guy named Arthur Nelson, and he's a clown. And the Royal Circus was in Great Yarmouth. And they advertised that Arthur Nelson was going to sail up the river in a wash tub pulled by four geese. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me with it. What are, what are your oh, thoughts? Oh God! Would you would you gather to the river to watch a man I'd in a buy bathtub? Those tickets. You'd buy oh, those tickets. Oh man, it's eighteen. What else is there to do? I, I'm buying those tickets. You know, like I could see. All right, I see the Lord. You're not <laughs> got to remember. Not afraid of clowns. So this is probably the no. funniest thing you've ever seen. Three parts of that. Going up honestly, river in a bathtub pulled by geese. Why? Well, I mean, honestly, I'd I'd pay tickets now to see it. I yeah, if someone wants, it was it like when I, they, is geese a term for something I don't know? Or are we talking about the burb? No, this is for real geese. So I'm looking at like the newspaper what? clipping from the time, 
And uh, it says, uh, Mr. Nelson will sail on the River Burr, starting from Yarmouth Bridge uh, to, I think it's, I can't read that part, but there's some gardens. At five o'clock on the above day, which is May 2nd, drawn by, in a washing tub by four real geese. <laughs> That's the title of the ad. I love how they have to specify real geese so it's not like he's just some folks swimming in a goose costume. <laughs> right, absolutely. What in the... So, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it's basically what it is, is it's a publicity stunt, right? No, for sure. <clears throat> so they're basically trying to, like, drum up business for the rest of the circus by having this public display. Oh, this isn't an advertisement for Big Goose? <laughs> no, no, Big Goose does not have any... Uh, uh, relevance, I guess, to to what they're doing. They are uh, there are potentially some bathtub sponsors. Ooh, uh, I could see that as a part of it. It yeah. can survive across the river. It'll survive your busy lifestyle. Come out of the mines and jump into our tub. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, whatever wash tub he's using, you know, we got to get that. It's That's stable enough to go up, go it up river. It floats. It's good around water. What else could you want? What else could you want out of a tub? So that's wild. This, <laughs> so this guy, the publicity stunt is a clown getting pulled in a bathtub powered by geese, and this is an engineering yes. podcast. Go on. Oh, absolutely. So of course, uh, he's not actually being drawn by four geese, which is kind of the the, oh. the tragedy of this whole thing, really. Um, so there's actually a rowboat and a rope under, underneath the water that goes to this rowboat that's pulling him. Oh, false advertisement. Yeah. Powered I'm a by goose. How is, exactly. So I'm like, that's kind of unfortunate. I really wish they had gotten just, how many geese does it take to pull a clown in a bathtub upriver? I'm sure we can that's... calculate goose power <laughs> compared to horsepower easily. I, I think so. Especially like in water. How angry are the geese is the common factor, you know? That's true because there is there are a few things that uh, man should fear more than an angry goose. As we were saying, like clowns, mad fire at the time, hot flames. A man, hot flames. A man being drawn up river by four geese. That's the show of the flames. year. I, That's the show of the year. Everyone's excited. It is. It is, and so there's a large crowd of people who gather on the Yarmouth suspension bridge. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, on May the 2nd to go view this. May the 2nd, 1845? 1845. Oh gosh, and, in Bridges. And basically several, several thousand people are viewing the clown from the riverbanks and about 300 people are on the southern footway of the bridge. That's a lot of folks. It is a lot of folks and they're all concentrated on one side of the bridge. Oh. So, Yes. So, let me tell you a little bit about this bridge. Let's so, okay. the Yarmouth Bridge Paint the picture. was made in, uh, I think the, the actual, yeah, so the, the bridge opens for public use on April 23rd, 1829. And originally, it is two footpaths, so basically a sidewalk on either side of a carriageway. Um, and it is originally a uh, 14-foot wide deck. And then uh, it is 92 in, uh, excuse me, 92 feet between the iron towers that support the bridge. All right. It's not too big so, of a bridge. It's not horribly large, but it's still... A pretty good size. I, I mean, I, I guess. So, like, 92 feet, like, that's pretty long, right? Yeah. Um, that's, like, what, 30 freedom units? <laughs> yeah, I guess it'd be 30 yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feet, feet is freedom units. Oh, yeah. That's advanced uh, football freedom units. There you go. Football freedom. Yeah, yards is, is advanced freedom units. Absolutely. So, 100 yards. Is a football football field's 100 yards, right? Yeah, and it's weird because, like, I, you know, I played football. I played soccer, right? But, you know, on cheap football field turf. So, it's like, that's my measure of distance is, like, 100 yards. I know what that is. I know how to split that into a third. I can okay. throw that. Easy. Yeah. So, this is, I mean, yeah, it's a substantial bridge, but it's not, like, un 
ungodly yeah. in its size, right? It's, it's not enormous. But, but it's eighteen forty five. Like, come on now, that's a it's a nice yeah, gallivant. Yeah, and it was built in uh, in eighteen twenty nine, right? So even a little bit earlier uh, when, when it was made. So the bridge is uh, supported by suspension chains, as we've talked about, um, at both edges of the deck. So there's basically, obviously, two sides of the bridge. And each of these chains is formed from two sets of seven-eighths thick uh, I-bars, which are basically like, um, they're just a special type of chain, basically. But, uh, but basically, they are, uh, it's a rod with two eyelets at either side. So it looks kind of like a wishbone, right? So if you take okay. like a bone... And then drill a hole on either side, like that would kind and of. And then you connect them like that, just multiple. And then you connect it, yeah. And then they're like looped into each other. So it's less uh, flexible than when I think of a chain today. Like these Correct. are pretty so, rigid structures. Yeah, so it, it's basically it's not yeah it's not a standard like chain link chain that we would think of today. It, it's really, I guess it would look more like a bunch of turnbuckles all kind of hooked together. Right that makes sense. Like they can articulate off each other, but not by much. Yeah, well, I mean, they yeah, they can articulate off each other pretty well, but like the chains are basically each link of the chain is like a lot longer than we would like normally think of a chain would be, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, but anyway, and all these eye bars are made by a local blacksmith, and the. Yeah, so then as time goes on, they're like, oh, we need this bridge to be bigger. <laughs> um, and so they decide to widen the bridge, which is always a good decision. Yeah, just, just to widen. Just slap just some more onto it. Yeah, that won't hurt anything. No, just slap <laughs> some more onto the original structure that if someone did math for, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And, and originally, the original design for the bridge actually only had it as a 63-foot span. Oh, so they're already going past spec on V1. They're already, yeah, they're already going past spec. And then once they, uh, in, in 1832, um, they made it wider, right? And so they widen it by two feet on either side. So now it is, uh, what, I guess Dang about 16, 16, 17 feet wide. Okay. And there is now room for two walkways and a carriageway, or Ooh, two carriageways, exciting. excuse me. So it's basically a two-lane road and two walk, basically a sidewalk either side. Wow, 1800s, and, then, and they had freaking sidewalks. Crazy. <laughs> And then, in addition, they basically put the railings all the way out to the edges of the deck um, in order to basically provide a little bit more room for the walking path. And that increases the overall width to 19 feet and 10 inches, which, uh, if we do the math, is a full five feet pretty much wider than it was originally intended to be. So keep hmm. that in mind because that'll come into a factor. Basically, that adds about two long tons of weight to the bridge. That's a lot for so, a bridge that's already over-specified. Yes, so that adds about 6,000 pounds to the bridge Yeesh. compared to the original deck, which is the, the original deck in total is about 40,000 pounds. So you're adding an extra 6,000 pounds to the bridge. Um. This which, is fine. Which I'm sure is fine. That's a lot of weight, <laughs> but like, you know, bridge, go burr. Yeah, so let's, let's, I'll, let me continue talking about this bridge. So basically, the, the suspension bridge, the main element are these two, uh, obviously each side has a chain, and then each of those sides is actually two chains. So it's two sets of these uh, I-bars that I talked about, and then they are actually... Um, Vertical iron rods, just solid iron rods that come down from the suspension chain and then attach to the deck of the bridge. And that's what actually supports the weight of the bridge along its span. Gotcha. And, like, are the chains connected to these iron rods, or is that just... They are. Okay, Yeah, gotcha. so the, ch the chains are basically the iron, the iron rod is hooked to the chain, and then it's hooked to the walkway, and that's what supports the weight of the bridge. Cool. So then... Um, 
Yeah, so then the bridge reopens in 1844 with the widened causeway and uh, the railings moved and everything. Big old and thick that, bridge now. Big old Thickums Bridge. Thickums Bridge. <laughs> so that brings us back to the 2nd of May, 1845, as we see, you know, Mr. Nelson in a wash tub drawn by four geese floating upstream underneath the bridge. So as all these people are on the bridge, it's about 5.40 p.m., and there's 300 people on one side of the bridge gathered as close to the railing as they can. Oh, now that I've visualized the bridge, I see where this is going. Holy cow. Oh, yes. So around 5.40 p.m., one of the I-bars in the suspension chain fails. And somebody in the crowd witnesses this. It's, it's noted that somebody sees this oh, happen. They just saw it break? And yeah, yeah. And then nobody does anything. <laughs> oh, that's strange. Well, anyway, yeah. where's that clown? Right, because there's the second chain, right? So there's every each side of the bridge has two chains. So if we remember from last week, we talked about the Broughton uh, suspension bridge failure. It only had one chain and one bolt fastening the uh, suspension components of the bridge to the to the ground, right? So that was kind of like, oh, maybe we should double up. So in this case, they did. They so had basically redundancy. a redundant chain, absolutely. But nobody evacuates the bridge. Basically, everyone's like, oh, I guess it's fine. The, the bridge didn't fall down, so we're fine. I love how that's the, that's what it <laughs> takes. It's just like, wow, something just fell off the bridge. Anyway... Yeah, it's just like, anyway, have a look at Mr. Nelson down in his wash tub drawn by four geese. To be fair, that's a pretty reasonable distraction. That's a I will admit, that'd be pretty cool to see. Because they got the best seat in the house for now. They do, absolutely. And, and you know the real tragic... Well, we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know the real tragedy. <laughs> so basically what happens is for about five minutes... The entire weight of the bridge with all the people on it on the one side is held by the single chain remaining on that side of the bridge. And then it finally fails. And the south side of the deck falls into the river, and although the north end remains you know, su suspended, basically. So you have the same tipping motion, and it just dumps Ooh. people into the river. And it throws people like against that iron rods oh. that are connecting. Yeah. So like, it's just this mess. Like people are getting tangled in the remnants Sheesh. of the chain and the iron and everything. Oh, so this uh, is the environmental effects that you were talking about. And the environmental effect was the people. Uh, I actually changed which uh, topic we were going to cover today. Oh, <laughs> so actually right the on. environmental effects will have to wait until next week. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's crazy. All right, so you got uh, sorry. 30, throw 300 people on one side of the bridge getting, I'm talking, catapulted down into one. Because yes. bridges don't fail softly from what I've seen. Yeah, they yeah very suddenly, right? I mean, so it's the full weight of everything oh. just falling, right? So it's just this sudden fall. And then, um, hold on, I'm getting a call real quick. No, take your time. Oh, it's podcast time. Ooh, baby, podcast time. We're doing a little bit of a wait while Jim takes a bit of a phone call. Podcast time. Ooh, I'm talking podcast time. Ooh, podcast time. Ooh, podcast time. A little breaking podcast time is good. We're learning about bridges today. I'm talking about bridges today, 1845. But don't forget, it's podcast time. You gotta remember it is podcast time. Even when you're breaking. Oh, you know we're not faking. It's podcast time. Podcast time. <laughs> I saw you tuning over there. <laughs> we're not cutting any of that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right and we're back we are gonna spring back into our episode right now <laughs> okay so basically 
uh, where were we? Basically, all these people are falling into the river. And uh, now comes kind of the real tragedy, which is, you know who really likes clowns? Children. Yeah. Yeah. Children. Yeah. So basically, like, the crowd is like four or five people deep crowded up against the railing. And these kids are in the front. Oh, they're like climbing on the rail? Yeah. So then like all the people who are behind them get shoved basically by gravity into these kids. (laughs) So everyone just gets like piled against the railing and then dumped into the river. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah, which is not good. Um, So a lot of kids uh, end up drowning, which is really terrible. Uh, One of the notes here is that one child was saved from being swept away by her mother holding onto her clothes with her teeth. Oh, a mother's strength. That's wild. Yeah, so just like, ah, you know, just not going nowhere. Which I think is just wild. I would love to see that. The adrenaline to. God. Yeah, like, uh, that's a lot of teeth strength. I mean, that's determination. Yeah, the the deter like you got to think about the reflexes to reach out and chomp, and you chomp only get on one your chomp. child's clothes. I know, right? Like I'm impressed by the reflexes and the hand mouth coordination. Oh, for real, that's what that mouth do. <laughs> that is what that mouth do. Dang, like wife of the year. Am I right, boy? <laughs> oh my goodness, a mother's um, love has no bounds. Indeed. But yeah, so I mean, there are these like tales of incredible heroism, um, but but there's still it's still really bad. I mean, and the the river is about seven feet deep at this point, and it's a fairly quick stream, I guess, at this at this juncture, like the it's a fairly large river. So like the current is strong. And uh, so there's boats that are scrambled to start rescuing people. Uh, the, the wounded and dead are taken to nearby houses and pubs to basically be, uh, taken care of. There's like a a pretty good uh, response, I guess, in terms of like the rescue effort. There are some people who are actually trapped in the wreckage of the bridge, but are either are are able, some are able to be rescued. Some are not. That's brutal. Um, Like you're getting folks crushed on the top, hitting the chains on the way down. And then you better be able to swim because you're saying that there's a current to sweep you. And in 1845, a lot of people did not know how to swim. Yeah, it wasn't like a recreational thing, right? It was not a recreational thing, absolutely. Um, You know, so that is uh, really unfortunate. Um, 79 people were killed in the disaster. 59 of those people were children. Oh, Um, no. Yeah, and most most of those killed were under 13 years of age, which is really quite tragic. Um, This is supposed to be a good day. I know, like you got this headline. That would be the best. Can you imagine it's your birthday and you're like, I'm about to see the most odd thing I've ever heard in my 13 years. You got this clown in a bathtub drawn by geese, and then you end up dead. Dang, man, that's super sad. Like I didn't, I didn't even consider the. Yeah, it's a kid's attraction. That's what. That's who goes to circuses. Absolutely. So it's a lot of dead, man. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, and so the next day they have a coroner's inquest and we've actually right. talked a little bit about these on the show. Before. You got to do your record keeping like to gotta do to your know, record yeah. keeping. So the inquest is, uh, basically is done. And as part of this, because it is, uh, there's actually this, this group called the institution of civil engineers at this point in time, uh, in Britain. And they, the British government commissions this guy named James Walker. Hey, that's you. (laughs) Uh, To basically go and investigate, be part of this inquisition to, or excuse me, not inquisition. That's a totally different (laughs) civil engineering endeavor. Holy cow. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish inquisition. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Solid. (laughs) <laughs> so this you have well it's interesting that the municipal government at the time was smart enough to ask the engineers for help it, yeah so like this is i mean so again we're kind of in the middle of the industrial revolution and this is at the point 
where there are starting to become these like societies of engineers and stuff like this, yeah. where there is a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more of a community within the bridge building space and like stuff like this. And, and people are starting to make names for themselves as bridge designers and stuff. And we're starting to see like the very foundations of, um, of regulation really being laid uh, through these types of tragedies. Yeah, and um, honestly, standardization, because you have these groups of, like, I guess not foremen, but, you know, engineers of the time actually having an information share. So maybe one bridge yeah. across town is maybe managed by a different group, but you're starting to learn lessons together. Absolutely. And we'll get into, like, the, the fundamental, like, um, outcomes of, of this beyond the human loss uh, in, in a few minutes. But basically... Uh, you know, Mr. Walker, he finds that the original specification for the bridge had called for, quote, quote, high quality iron to be used for the I-bars that made up the suspension chain. But he hadn't actually, like, specified any sort of, like, testing or, or actual, like, specific, yeah, like, like specific the, requirements. Like, what's the tensile limits of it? They just said yeah, high quality, the good stuff. Yeah, like, what's high quality iron and how do you test if iron is of high quality right so like that is that is oddly ambiguous and <laughs> likely intentionally ambiguous well it's extremely vague I, I i think i don't know right like so it's hard to say um, oh i know what this is yeah you know high quality iron down at frank's high quality iron and dispensary <laughs> you gotta listen boys you ain't getting iron unless it's from frank <laughs> it's just an ad it sounds like what is high quality iron that's so yeah. vague, even for it the 1800s. Is. Yeah. So, and again, like, because remember, the bridge was actually built in 18, basically 28, right? So the bridge has been around for like 20 years at the point of failure by the time it Ooh, fails. That's a lot of weather. And it's, and it's been altered. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that's been happening. And we'll actually talk a little bit about um, fracture mechanics today here in a few minutes. Yeah. So basically what they find is that the um they failed to say like what qualifies as high quality iron like what's the test for that right and then he finds also that the failure occurred with in both of the i bars in a joint within the i bars so the i bars were basically forged from three pieces so there was the basically the rings that made the eyes Okay. And then the rod that connected them. Are these welded together? And, and these are forge welded, scarf jointed together. Um, so when you're forge welding, generally what you do is you create what's called a scarf joint, which is you basically you create a thick section of uh, metal that you can kind of, um, if you take your hand and you cup it, and then you take your other hand and you cup it as well, and then put your hands over top of each other, you'll kind of see you've got like this thick section of your hands relative to your arms. And so then what you do into forge weld those is you heat them up to a, uh, about 2000 degrees Fahrenheit and then you hammer them together. And what that does is basically it flattens out that thick section and then brings it into the same dimension as the rest of the material. And at the same time, that creates a molecular bond between the iron metal, uh, or excuse me, the iron molecules between the, um, where that scarf joint was. So like it's, you know, it's thicker metal, but it ends up being the same diameter across the whole thing, but it's denser at the point of the joint. Not exactly. So you, the only reason you start with that thicker material is because as part of the process for forge welding you have to hammer it down. So if you started with two pieces of metal that were the same thickness as the rest of the stock, you would actually end up with a thin section where you welded it. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, because you have sense. to you have to forge it down. But the density doesn't change. The density doesn't change, right? Huh. So the forge weld actually, is, excuse me, not a molecular bond. It creates basically uh, a continuous steel microstructure, right? So be, be, because when you look at steel, um, at, a, at like a functional crystalline level, it creates like crystals basically. 
And the goal of welding is to make that crystalline structure uh, homogenous, basically. The problem with forge welding is that, especially in 1845, is that you're forge welding in coal, and you're forge welding, uh, in this case, with material that may or may not be of high quality. High quality um, in the biggest quotes. <laughs> right, and like, what does that even mean? Um, and so it's very common in forge welds, especially compared to like modern welding technology, it's very common to have inclusions or fractures uh, or little pockets where there was a little bit of slag um, that uh, basically the weld doesn't take. Because in order for a forge weld to be successful, it has to be very clean. Like the metal has to be very, very clean to each other. Because you want as little barrier for the iron microstructure to uh, homogenize and kind of grow together and, and bond. Hmm. And any contaminants can prevent that from happening. So contaminants can be anything from like a piece of sand or uh, a piece of iron oxide or slag uh, or whatever, right? So it's, it's not uncommon for forge welds to have impurities or inclusions that prevent it from being a fully complete um, uh, like weld. Basically. Interesting. So it, you're just, so this is where you get into your fractures. Like we're thinking of something that's supporting yes. a huge amount of pressure all the time. Yes, and these chains are supporting. Yeah, they're supporting this whole bridge, right? So the chain itself failed. Like it just broke. Yeah. So that one of the, they basically the chain links broke. Yeah, they Sheesh. burst. And so the first one, uh, the first rod, um only covers like 5% of the total like surface area of like cross-sectional area of the rod eye. So like that first, and like this is the other thing too, right? Is like, this is a huge chain, <laughs> right? And so it's got probably hundreds, if not thousands of these links, you know, in the, in the whole bridge, right? right? And is and it crazy that of all that, someone saw this happen? Or at yeah, least by their yeah. own account. Well, yeah, because like one of the chains falls, right? Before Ugh. the bridge falls, right? One of the chains falls. And then the, the basically, quote unquote, the backup chain, the second chain on that side, fails five minutes later. Do you think and if so, all those folks weren't on one side of the bridge, it would have collapsed like it did? Do you think the no, backup would have held? Well, so the thing is, right, because you have all those people on one side of the bridge, you're concentrating all of the stress of that dynamic load onto one set of chains. So basically what you have is the north side that did not collapse, the north side of the bridge, is under a relatively light load. Whereas the south side chain is under an immense amount of loading, uh, even beyond what it, it normally carries. And you know, if those 300 people were dispersed evenly across the bridge, the other chain would have been carrying like half of that weight. Hmm. And so I don't think you would have seen a failure uh, or you may not have seen a failure. The first link to fail had not been properly welded and the contact was only like 5% of the cross-sectional area. So only like wow. 5% of that weld had actually succeeded. High quality. Yeah. That's not something that's checked or is that something you can't no. check? Uh, so you can, it depends a little bit on what it is. So part of the, um, forge welding process, right. Is because you're forge welding the interior surface of the bar, it is more difficult to visually inspect, but you can usually see a, um, there will be like a line. Let me see if I can send you a picture. Right. I'll be like weld. 5% is not a lot. No, that's very small. You can see like there's a little line where that scarf was and you can inspect that. I mean, and so you can, you can visually inspect that and see if it's starting to pry loose. Uh, because on, on bad welds, you'll be able to see that line and it'll kind of go into the material. Hmm. Um, whereas on a good weld, you'll, you'll, you'll still be able to make out that transition, but you, you can't like get a pick into it or anything like that. Gotcha. Like, it's it's fully, really flat, very even, and it's not going to yeah. be something you can slip material through. 
Correct. Easily. Right. So that's the ideal weld. So then that first chain that failed, basically there was there was hardly any metal actually holding that chain link together. The second chain link only had uh, I think it's 30% of the weld is is structurally sound. And they can find this out after it fails? You can. So basically what it'll what happens is uh, the when you when you find the two ends of the rod there is going to be a section of it that the section of it that was actually sticking together basically is going to be deformed whereas the parts of it that were not uh actually holding together are actually going to have like rust and stuff on them and they'll they'll oh, look because of the weathering old because of the weathering exactly so this is actually also <laughs> and this is going to go into another tangent but if you look at like cyclical loading failure you can see the same thing so um, when you have cyclic crack propagation failure, what'll basically happen is you'll have a, a site at one end of the uh, of the piece of material that fails, where the crack begins to form, and over time, as it continues to wobble, that crack grows and grows and grows until eventually the remaining material can't handle the load and it fails all of a sudden. And what you'll be able to see is in that uh, area where it was slowly cracking and the crack was widening, you'll be able to see corrosion and discoloration and all this happening because that is now exposed to the oxygen of the environment. Um, and so when you look at these types of failures, it's very easy to see especially ones that take a lot of time to happen it's actually pretty easy to see like where the failure begins because it almost looks like a beach because hmm. you kind of have these these arching uh striations that uh start showing up let me see if i can get a good picture to send over to you yeah i have to um, keep this in mind the next time i'm reading through like a ntsb like after report yeah. Like things to look for if you're not an engineer. Yeah. So this is this is a bolt failure that I've just sent you. Um, but you can kind of see there's these, uh, there's like kind of this beachhead area. And then there's this final catastrophic failure that happens on the right-hand side of the bolt. Uh, in the, there's an area marked C where it, it just finally goes. And there's that's a very brittle uh, failure at that point. But anyway, so then while the bridge is held up by this single chain, that chain, that chain length that fails stretches like a full inch under the weight of the bridge. I mean, Sheesh. so it's carrying this huge amount of load that it stretches for a full inch before it finally fails and, um, and then throws everybody into the water. And like this guy named James Walker figures this out in 1845 by just rummaging through the wreckage and knowing what to look for. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, well, so a lot of this, uh, well, they didn't really know about like all the, the stuff about fatigue failure and cyclic crack propagation and all that stuff. They didn't understand that. Um, really, uh, fracture failure and fracture mechanics is still actually a relatively new area of study in engineering. Uh, so the guy who I guess we would consider like the father of fracture mechanics, uh, his name is A.A. A. Griffith. And he really was starting to develop this stuff like around the a, a little bit after the First World War. Um, Griffith was trying to figure out why uh, the, the actual stress that is needed to break glass is so much lower than it theoretically should be. Um, and basically what he came up with is that glass is actually full of tiny little bubbles. And so all those little bubbles create uh, stress risers that we've talked about. And um, eventually, at a certain point, all those flaws uh, will propagate and create uh, a failure. And so he kind of started looking at why that happens and, and started mathematically developing formulas to express how those uh, fracture, I guess, thresholds might be calculated and stuff. And he wasn't quite right. And there's another guy 
by uh, his name is uh, Irwin, who kind of comes after Griffith and and starts modifying some of it and gets a more accurate, uh, specifically for like ductile materials, gets a more accurate um, model that we actually still use today. Well, that's cool. Um, and yeah, it's, I guess so, like it kind of increases with the technology. Like once you can actually look at it, you can kind of confirm your theories like with modern micro microscopy. Yes. Yeah. So you can actually, yeah. And, and like, so there's, I mean, fracture mechanics are still a huge thing. So are you familiar with like the Liberty ships, Derek? No. What's that? Okay. Uh, so the Liberty ships is probably actually something we'll cover at a separate point in this episode, but basically <laughs> The Liberty, or not this episode, but later on in the podcast. So the Liberty ships were uh, a class of ships that were built for uh, the Second World War in America. And it was actually one of the first times that like industrial welding was used to uh, create ships. And part of the problem is that we didn't really understand how fracture works. And so the ships weren't all built correctly to account for potential flaws in the material. And as a result, like you have boats, like these, these ships, these Liberty ships that would actually just split in half, like quite literally oh. split in half. Like the uh, superstructure would split in half? Yeah. Like the whole hull would just split oh. in half. Yeah. That would <laughs> yes. So, and, and basically it's because, you know, in a ship, you've got this cyclic loading, right? Because it's being yeah, you're loaded going over by the waves. waves. You're going up and over, up and down on the waves. The motion of the ocean, if you will. And what happens is uh, if you have flaws in the material that create cracks and you don't design it around, uh, you know, basically fatigue fracture, fatigue failure mechanics... Uh, those cracks can propagate and lead to very rapid and sudden catastrophic failure um, in a brittle mode. So what you're seeing here, uh, for the listener, there is an image of a ship that's basically split in half. Is um, It's like comically split in half, like straight <laughs> down the gullet. It is. Um, yeah. and so this It doesn't look the, real. <laughs> It, yeah, it's kind of weird because like literally the prow and the stern of the ship are are just pointed downwards. It's a good thing this happened in up. shallow water instead of like on the sea, right? Absolutely. But there are there are liberty ships that broke apart on the sea. Oh, and there's just no recovering that. Like you're the No, I mean it's you'd sink it's so quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, because literally like the the whole structure of the ship cracked. It's gone. Wow. Just gone. Yeah, I hope we do talk about boats one day. Yeah, we, we will definitely talk about boats. Boats are another great engineering point. Um, oh. But yeah, so like that's a little bit about kind of uh, fracture mechanics. Like the history of how you find out these things is pretty cool. I'd like to hear more about that as yeah. we go on. Yeah, and, and one of the other things that fracture mechanics talks about and, and dictates is like, what's the minimum and maximum so, okay, so let me go into this just a little bit more. What is the maximum crack size that a, a component can uh, withstand before failure? And then how long does it take for cracks to grow? And what is the smallest crack that we can assume is present in the material because of manufacturing defects or manufacturing process, right? Oh, so you kind of get the... You, before, they were building things that, like, assume a perfect material because Correct. that's just how the math worked out. Now we're starting to actually factor in... Okay, there's, what do you call it, uh, relevant tolerances? I don't know what it's called in your industry. Uh, well, so it'd be, like, um, in this... So in engineering, a lot of the time, it's called, like, safety factor. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so basically... Part of an engineer's job is to make certain assumptions about like how do we make how do we model this problem that we're trying to solve or how do we model this building that we're trying to build or the, the bridge in this case that we're trying to build and what assumptions can we make about it and a very common assumption is that the material is pristine um, 
in reality uh, and in modern engineering, that assumption is not made nearly as often. <laughs> that's good. Well, I guess it's one of those things. Like, that's what they teach you when you're learning, like, basic math, right? Like, oh, right. assume a perfect spear, but there's no such thing. Exactly. And so the same thing is true. There's no such thing as a perfect material. And that's why a lot of times you'll see, like, if you have a sample, and the steel is a kind of an interesting example too, right? Because modern steels are actually extremely homogenous. They're very, very um, well manufactured. There's very small uh, amounts of, of imperfections in modern steel. Um, but in, in 1845, or excuse me, 1828, when this was built, completely different story. Steel right. was oftentimes full of imperfections because of the manufacturing process. Yeah, you're eyeing it too. Yeah, and it's it's all kind of, it's, it's hand forged, right? These are all hand forged links to this chain. Just smack it so, with a hammer. Exactly. I mean, ultimately, it, it, it's not, um, it's a much more difficult process to control from an engineering standpoint. Um, and so, obviously, the, the people at that time, they would have had no idea about, about the uh, fracture mechanics and, and all that stuff. Um, so it's difficult to say what they could have done about it. But right. anyway, so they kind of go through the report, and there's a couple of reports that are made to the uh, British government about it. And they decide, okay, the decision to widen the bridge was probably a bad decision. The bridge was never intended to carry that extra 6,000 pounds. We shouldn't have loaded it like that. Yeah, that's just uh, um, build a new bridge. Exactly. And then the additional uh, the additional weight that was imposed by the width was actually all outside of the original uh, trusses, basically, right? So if you think about, like, the suspension chains, they didn't, like, move those apart. Oh, they the just, center of gravity stayed the same? The center... Well, well I guess the they changed gravity, it. Yes. Well, so if you think about, like... They didn't change the center of gravity, right? But, like, so the... Um, basically what I'm saying is the, the posts and the suspension chains, they remained like 14 feet apart. Hmm. And, and then they, they just, just added, added stuff to the edge. They just added on to the edges. So all that extra weight is only being held up by one of those chains, right? On either side. So you kind of have this compounding factor of like the extra weight only being carried by one set of chains and it's the outside set of chains. Oh, and you just never really... I mean, this is things you don't think about until something like this happens. Correct. So then it's thought that um, at the time, if the bridge had not been widened, it would have been able to accept the crowd uh, loading of all the people. And in fact, there had been much larger crowds on the bridge, but people had been spread out more evenly across the two sides of the bridge so that all that loading wasn't put just on one side or the other. Gosh. So uh, there's some more criticisms of like suspension bridge design that have been constructed. Um, and, and there's some ideas then that basically, okay, maybe we shouldn't put suspension bridges in places where there's gonna be like big crowds like this. Because at this point, there are a couple incidents like this where... Um, similar bridges have collapsed under crowd load. Uh, and then uh, there's, yeah, so there's some more drive back towards like building truss bridges or more rigid structures. But finally, you know, they decide that the primary cause of failure are these two eye bars that were defective. Hmm. Um, and this other guy, his name is uh, James Rendall, who is another person who's on this commission to... Uh, identify the, the problems of the bridge. He says, basically, any adequate testing would have discovered that these I-bars were not of sufficient quality. Oh, so what he's saying is before you even leave the factory, just, like, attach it to two points and pull, and, and they probably would have it, seen it? Exactly. Okay. Um, and so then what this actually leads to is uh, kind of the uh, institutionalization, I guess, of like regner, regular routine scheduled inspection of bridges. Um, and so the ICE, uh, which is again, the Institution of Civil Engineers, basically they recommend that all public bridges should be regularly inspected by a competent engineer in order to prevent this type of tragedy. Um, 
And so that starts happening. So really, like, this is the initial uh, failure that kind of leads towards regularly scheduled inspections of civil architecture. Hey, you got to start somewhere. And that's, it's wild. I know like we've gone on 14 different rabbit holes because engineering is that <laughs> complex, right? Like you start talking oh, about yeah. material science, then you have to start talking about the physics of it. But this all started because folks were leaning over a bridge that was already modified, trying to see a clown in a bathtub powered by geese, even though the geese were alive. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, just the the happen circumstance of life is interesting. And engineering is just another language to sing that song. It is. It is. It's a beautiful, wild, crazy ride. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's the Yarmouth suspension bridge. Oh, gosh. I Bridge failures are sad, but it's just crazy. The things that cause them. It's not what you think. Like, it's not. Yeah. It's not what you think. Like a crowd, like a, a celebration. I didn't think about like last week. You know, the marching in step, right? A crowd leaning over the edge this week. These small changes yep. matter, and the fact that the history of the bridge is a big part of it, right? If that thing Absolutely. wasn't modified the way it was, or at least if it was modified with the proper precautions of like, all right, let's reinforce it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so like, that's part of this too, is like, you got to think about it, like, okay, how much should 300 people weigh? It's a lot. Right. It's a cool ton. Assuming. Yeah. So like, let's, let's assume like a lot of these people are kids. Right. So, so let's just say like what, 75 pounds. Yeah. Like maybe an average weight of like a hundred pounds person. So yeah. So it's 30,000 pounds. I mean, like that's a significant load. Like that's a lot yeah. of people. And you were talking last uh, week about, you know, like the bridge is only supposed to hold itself. And what the assumed load is. 30,000 in carriage times is a lot on, a, on mean, its own. A, yeah, that's a lot of pounds. On one side, forget about it. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and I mean, bridges can certainly be designed to carry that load. And it had in, in previous circumstances, but not so isolated, right? And part of this, too, is as we move going forward, you start designing, you see, start seeing designs in civil architecture and bridge building and stuff like this that are designed for worst case scenario, right? So it's like, okay, well, what if we, you know, what if there were like 300 people that all crowded to one side of the bridge? What would happen, right? And that is because like these civil engineering projects are so expensive and potentially can lead to enormous loss of life that you have to start thinking about okay, well, what happens if some idiot in a clown suit decides to <laughs> go up the river in a bathtub with four geese? Yeah. And then, you know, it's like the hypest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah, and then 300 people crowd to one side of the bridge, right? So, like, <laughs> and, and, like, it sounds so absurd, but, like, that's so real at the same time of, like, it's just always these absurd things that right. then if you're if you don't design for it it's gonna happen right like everyone expects oh yeah a boat's gonna hit the bridge one day no one expects several boats to hit the bridge at the same time but the one summer that happens you know you're in business exactly exactly so so it, yeah it kind of shifts it signals a little bit of a shift in attitude towards design and, and architecture that propagates through to today uh, because we, you know, in modern times you see a lot of this redundant architecture um, and like high safety factors and design for like max use case scenario where you do have like crowd loading or resonance loading taken into effect and mm. stuff like that. And then also, you know, environmental factors, which I promise we will talk about next week. <laughs> See, I, I am paying attention. Like, in my head, I know, like, I'm also, like, an active participant of this podcast. I'm learning something every week, and I'm trying to put the story together, right? Absolutely. So, I I won't give away, and I actually had, like, more content. <laughs> I was going to talk a little bit about the Charpy impact test, but we'll I think we'll save that for a future episode. Um because I think it 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 has uh, it has a little bit more to do with with a later failure that we'll talk about. So sweet. Uh, I love Derek, that you have think, a backlog already. Oh, I'm I'm such a nerd that, <laughs> that I'm already thinking like so far ahead. Nice. Um, 
I'm so excited about it all. Uh, so, so next week, I won't give away the exact thing that we're talking about. Um, but I will say that we're going to be going across the pond from England, in this case. We're going to be going across the channel into France. And we're going to talk about a French bridge that collapsed. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get into that. So, so Derek, do you have anything to plug as we wrap up our episode? You know, the normal stuff, nothing specific to me, but, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Everything's a Spring by Jim and Derek Presents. Uh, go ahead and follow us on our socials. We have an Instagram now. I haven't put much on it, oh, but sure. we okay. do have at Everything's a Spring on Twitter at all our spring because they didn't let us have all those letters. And of course, anywhere podcasts are listened to. We, I think we're pretty much posting everything regularly now. And, I have one request of our gentle listener. If you're listening to this now when we were posted or years later, you're going through our archive. If you know someone that loves engineering, know someone that loves to learn and know someone that likes to listen to a couple dudes hang out, uh, send them a, send them the podcast. Cause I have been greatly surprised by the types of groups that actually listen to this even at episode seven. So, you know, share the love. We'll be uh, making episodes pretty much up until Christmas, I assume, right? And then we might take a, a break or for a couple weeks. On one last note, I did buy myself, a, I got I got gifted some pretty nice scotch for the first time, which is a cool Ooh. gift to receive. And I bought myself a fresh, brand new engraved whiskey grail because I really wanted one. <laughs> I want a new one. <laughs> awesome. I really appreciate the support, Derek. Oh, it's a good product, man. I like good products. All right. I love it. Well, Derek, let's bounce. Let's bounce.